0: July 29, 2012, lecture discussion number 76 on the Book of Romans, and last Sunday uh, was lecture discussion number 75, obviously, uh, right on the Book of Romans, and we left off at the two uh, golden cap groups, if you will, the golden cappers, as I like to say, the black sun and the black moon, or the blood moon, sorry, that's where we left off, and uh, by the way, uh, this for the internet folks. The uh, Cliffside uh, uh, website is almost functional. There's small details to complete. Ben asked me last Sunday if I had any sermon title input. Um, as such, would be helpful for persons uh, to locate subjects and topics of particular interest. And as you know, my idea of a sermon title or an attention-grabbing title is uh, what well, I just did. Lecture discussion number 76. I, I think it's a number. And I'm inspired by that, but uh, the, the casual website peruser doesn't find that desirable. And probably it, they find it to be the exact opposite of what they would want or expect. As you know, around here, Supper Dave is responsible for all the sermon titles on Sermon Audio. And so you cannot assign blame to me. I do none of that. He does it all. And many people accuse me of doing it. Uh, but it's not me. Uh, that's their way of saying, who's ever doing it, is doing a really good job. And then, of course, there's other people that mock us and mock me for them. But it is Supper Dave, and he's gone to great lengths to uh, title the sermon audio lectures. Uh, but it is tedious work, to say the least, and it's going to take a while to complete all that kind of stuff. And we need people who will upload things, because, as you know, I have a vast amount of material. Uh I, I did the math one time a couple of years ago on how many words I have written in my career. And I'm almost now, I believe, I'm close to four million words, handwritten. And I have them all. Boxes, yeah. And, and uh, uh, every now and then somebody will come to me and say, well, can I have those? And and, uh, and I'll transcribe them for you <laughs> until they see the scope of the problem. And then... The... And my handwriting is actually pretty good. Can you see? Yeah, you can actually kind of read it. It's nothing like what I put on the board, but uh, but it's actually I write in capital letters and everything's capitalized, and it's really difficult to figure out what I'm trying to say, which is no much different than what we do every Sunday, right? But anyway, point of all of that um, uh, is that we're going to need some volunteers. Catherine called today to uh, do some of that kind of stuff. If you're interested, uh, please uh, let Ben know or Lori know. Uh, and uh, we'll start getting a hold of that. Uh, we have to have some kind of web, uh, um, what's the word uh, that I'm looking for? Yes, some kind of web master type person. <sighs> and that's a, that's a, it probably needs to be shared because of the burden of it. Uh, but since we're on internet stuff, I promised that when I received another one of, uh, one of these, and how should I put it, uh, another um, unfriendly, response, that I would share it. And so today's the day. It comes from a gentleman named Michael K from Florida, and he wrote this. <laughs> Let me find it. It's not as easy to find as I thought. Uh, greetings, uh, Pastor Steve. You are confused. <laughs> <laughs> That's not bad, really. Uh, a lot of times I get, y- you are an idiot. So uh, so uh, confused is, I'm actually feeling pretty good. Then he goes on to say this. You are confused. There is no free will. Okay? God is an absolute sovereign God. Everything is preordained there is no free will now to be fair for michael k from to, to be fair to michael k from florida he is correct god is absolute sovereign god that's absolutely true and i am occasionally confused usually uh with respect to cell phones and computers such and things like that uh, they don't hold any intrigue or interest to me why i handwrite everything right but I want you to notice Michael Kay's insistence. He is insisting. He is absolutely confident. There's a sureness in his statement there. There is no free will. He is positive in the absence of human or angelic free will. Again, there is none. And I, what I'll assume that Michael K. means... With that, is there is no free will of any kind for anything. None. And, and recognize that some modify a little bit in that regard. Uh, some uh, declare that there is uh, no absolute free will, but they will allow some free will. And by the way, do you have absolute free will? I want you to think it through. Um, if, if you will, for example, you're in a sinful world, right? Fallen world. How much control do you have? If my free will was today, I'd like it to be 75 degrees. Do I have absolute free will? No, my free will is, is, is limited. And so there is, uh, to say that you have absolute free will is not available to you either. So he's, he's gone this side. He says there is none versus absolute. And neither are true. Well, I've kind of given away my view there. Michael insists that uh, I'm confused. Again, he's right on some things. The result of the the view that there is no free will of any kind for anything is great problems. And by the way, the allies to this type of thinking, uh, this is called hyper-Calvinism thinking or hyper-Calvinism doctrine. The allies to this, I'm hearing a ringing bell. And where is it coming from? It's coming from the speaker system. Uh, uh, Just drop the main volume all the way down. Thank you. Raise the main volume back up. (laughs) Um, What can we do? You can uh, mute all the microphones. See if all the microphones mute, if that eliminates Okay, got rid of it right there, didn't we? Okay. Which microphone was it? Four. Yeah, that's Boris's guitar. Okay. We'll have to figure out why that is. Okay, back to where we were. Sorry about that. Hypercalvinism says there's no free will of any kind, none for anything, and it causes great problems. And the allies to this happen to be who? We're the allies to this kind of thinking. That's right. It's the monistic evolutionary philosophers who end up being hedonistic fatalists. In other words, the people who say you will cease to exist when you die also say that there is no free will and that all that we have in this world, in this environment, is a a series of random um, activities or events and you are subject to those random events. It's purposelessness. There is no purpose. One of the great debates in the scientific community is, does the universe have purpose? The overwhelming majority of them are evolutionary monistic thinkers, which means that they believe they're strictly physical, there is no spiritual, there is no survival of death, you cease to exist when you die, therefore they're hedonists, why not worship yourself, they're fatalistic because there's no purpose, and it's hopeless. They're allies to this. Christian supposed Christian doctrine of hyper Calvinism. And I would suggest to those folks, uh, the Michael and uh, and those and such the, the hyper sees, that when uh one's staunch supporters are the um, evolutionary philosophers, I would advise you to look at your position again. Be concerned when blind chance becomes elevated to great significance. What I mean by that is if there is no solution to human free will and God's omniscience, because that's what's in conflict, right? They say that God, knowing everything, is causation. If he knows it, he must be causing it. And I say back to them, listen, if that's the case, I know many things that Seth is going to do. Am I causing him to do any of them? No. I, I taught school for a long time. I got up in the, in the beginning of the class and said Today is the test and I could go, you, 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 and you and you are cheating right now. I know you're cheating. Did I cause them to cheat? No, but I enjoyed it. I found it very amusing. I liked I liked being prepared for it. And uh, the whole point of that again, is that's a silly illustration. I get it, but I want you to look at whether or not God's omniscience is causation with respect to his uh, respect to our sin. So this is a, a, a debate over the solution to human free will and God's omniscience, and then uh, what what comes next is the question: Is if there is no free will, okay, then what separates the saved from the unsaved? If there is no free will, let me repeat it completely: no ability to believe, no ability to reject. What saves? I'm sorry, what separates the saved from the unsaved? What would the fatalist say? Randomness. What's randomness? First, the fatalist would say there is no God anyway, but if I allowed him the hypothetical, if you eliminate free will, then salvation is based on luck. What's the luck? The hyper-Calvinist doesn't want to call it luck. What does he call it? Predestination. Well, how is it that you are predestined? Based on what? From your perspective, if you're predestined and your wife or son or children or mother or whatever is not predestined, what is separating the two of you? What caused you to be predestined and them not to be predestined? The fatalist, the evolutionary fatalist, would say what? Randomness. God chose. It was a random choice. Capriciousness, he would say. When your allies of your doctrinal position include people with that kind of thinking, be suspicious that you have thought it all through. Hyper-Calvinists, again, would say predestination, which the evolutionists would say that's the exact same thing as randomness or luck to me. And his point is very difficult to defeat. Randomness, purposelessness, if everything has been predetermined to the minutest detail, then the unsaved are hopeless, which is exactly the position of evolutionary monism philosophy. When you die, what happens to you? You cease to exist. It is hopeless. So the hyper-Calvinist has people that are hopeless, and the evolutionist has people that are hopeless. And they, the only difference is is the fatalist, the evolutionary fatalist, Um, would say that all are hopeless. The difference between hyper-Calvinism hopelessness and fatalist hopelessness is just the number of hopelessness. All we're arguing over is how many. Everything else is the same. And again, to repeat, if that's where you're headed, if that's who your friends are, uh, you're in the wrong side of the room, in my view. And the fatalist would say that any God that has such a system, uh, would have to be what? He'd have to be evil. He is the author of evil and therefore he is himself evil and on and on the spiral goal. So I ask, I ask question, has God designed a system where he is the causing agent of sin? Is that what the Bible teaches? Is that what you believe? Is that your opinion of God? Because that is the opinion of God in hundreds and hundreds of churches. Probably 15 in this city. See, really you got two things. You have the agnostic position, if you will, that God has abandoned his creation. He set it in motion. He walked away from it. And then you have the other position. The other opposite is that God is causing everything and that his knowing is causation and that he is intimately involved in every single detail. I was making fun with Seth the other day. We're building the fence and I was explaining this to him a little bit. Uh, In an absurd way, every time Seth would do something, I would say that God predestined you doing that before the beginning of time. And Seth would reach down and pick up a hammer. And I said, God predestined that you would, at this exact time in history, pick up that hammer. And you would kill that beetle with it. And Seth would stop and drop the hammer or something along those lines. And I said, God predestined that you would stop and drop the hammer just before you killed that particular beetle. And you end up in this absurd debate. Of what is God causing with his omniscience? Is he omniscient? Is he in control? Absolutely he is. How do I solve, if there is free will, how do I solve man's free will and God's omniscience? That is a big problem, obviously, to many people. uh, And that is what this, this discussion that I just got from Michael Kay is. Obviously, Michael Kay has solved it by saying that God is the causing agent of every, every sin. And therefore, he's the author of evil. Okay? So again, on and on this spiral will go. Eventually, salvation by faith, which is the book of Romans, which is where we are, right? Eventually, the salvation by faith, belief in the name of Jesus Christ, in the blood of Christ. Eventually, salvation by faith, belief by grace, the just shall live by faith. That is replaced by salvation... By predestination. That's my choice. I either got salvation by belief, by faith, or I have salvation by predestination. Preordination. I raise up what the fatalist would call randomness. Because he has a, he believes God is evil and capricious if he exists at all. And that is, like I said, salvation by predestination certainly affects the thesis of the book of Romans, and it affects Genesis 15, and it affects the cup at Gethsemane, and all of these very important things in the Bible where God is telling you, Matthew 4, where he is telling you that he has solved this problem, or what we think is a problem. And ultimately, this all leads to an argument over double predestination. Do you know what double predestination is? Double predestination or reprobation. Okay, see, which child is that, by the way? I can't tell the difference. They're twins. Duh. One of them likes the sermon every week and one of them doesn't. I'm not sure, not sure which one is which. <laughs> and they're both welcome. They don't eat much of the buffet. But they add to the count. Kind of a win-win. Anyway. <laughs> anyway. Okay. Double predestination or reprobation, meaning foreordination to condemnation or damnation. That's a bunch of nations. That make any sense to you? Double predestination. If some are predestined to salvation by, by, salvation by predestination, then others are predestined to what? Non-salvation or condemnation or damnation, right? Double predestination. Because if I'm predestined for salvation, then he is not. He's predestined for damnation, right? Double predestination. And and therefore, the vast majority of everyone who has been created has been what? What is the percentage of those who are saved? It's very small compared to the overall amount of humanity. So the vast majority have been predestined to eternal torment in the lake of fire. And that includes, by the way, who? Infants. Because infant children are infant children of non-believing parents, and those are predestined, according to the hyper-Calvinist and the fatalist thinking, predestined into condemnation. So I have infants, I have small children, I have the autistic, I have the severely handicapped from birth, I have the aborted. All what? Predestined into Eternal torment, or the overwhelming majority of them. Certainly all the Chinese. I'm kidding. Glad some of you laughed. But I'm just trying to illustrate where you go with these kinds of arguments. And I submit that this view renders hyper-Calvinistic dogma to be problematic, if not untenable. It's certainly in conflict with Isaiah 5.20. What's Isaiah 5.20? He said, Woe to you who calls good evil and evil good. Who's he talking about? talking about himself. Woe to you if you call me evil. Among other things. And it renders the expositors of the hyper-Calvinistic position uh, to be in the place of the Pharisee liar in the parable of the talents. Matthew 25, 14 through 29. If you're not familiar with that, I have the parable of the talents a second, Dave. I have the parable of the talents where I have one person who says, God, you are a hard God, and I know you're a hard God, and I just hid my stuff. And Christ calls him a liar to his face. And says, If you really believed I was hard, you would be afraid of me. You're obviously not afraid of me. This is a lie, and it's a lie on its face, and you are a liar. But that Pharisee is saying to God, saying to Christ, when he comes for his accounting, he is saying to Christ, you are a hard man. You're evil. You call God evil, where are you going? Isaiah 520. It's not going to work out well for you. Yes, sir. It does. He, he, what Dave is suggesting is that this is a popular message. Absolutely it is. It's like having the best bowling league. Everybody wants to get in. Right? And listen, you go all through, the, all through the community. There are churches, like I said, I make the joke all the time. I always wanted to be the uh, 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 316th Gospel Church or the uh, 14th Southern Baptist Church of Anchorage. You know, in other, in other words, instead of being the full gospel and the first Baptist, I always wanted to be the 34th Baptist church, or the 7th Presbyterian, as kind of a little eccentricity. But the point of it is is that people want to go to the best places because they want to be thought of as the best people. We're all in the sewage, sorry, not really, fake, sorry. God does not respond well to being called the author of evil or a hard God. Be advised of that. Instead, perhaps as another way to approach this issue. Maybe, just supposedly, hopefully, God has done what with this? You haven't solved it. Why do you assume what? I say to the hyper-Calvinist, you have not solved it. Your solution is to call God evil and to have a daycare center in the lake of fire. I'm not impressed. Eh? You haven't solved it, so you assume what? That God hasn't solved it. How arrogant of you. Just because you have found something that you think is unsolvable does not mean that God hasn't worked it out. In fact, I think it's logical that he has. Is it not possible? Is it not more likely? Is it not obvious the case that God being God, he has a system in place that reconciles his omniscience and human and angelic will that balances it somehow? Because we have to be accountable, right? He has to judge. If we are predestined to sin and we can't change anything, it's predestined that way. How is it that I have a fair trial? I have been made coerced, if you will, designed from the beginning of time to be guilty. How is that a fair trial? So maybe instead the tension that seems unresolved may have been... Instead, resolved, and I'm telling you it has. It's all through the Bible. Genesis 15 tells you that this has been resolved. Matthew 4 tells you it's been resolved. Matthew 26, Gethsemane tells you it's been resolved. Just because you have not recognized the resolution doesn't mean it hasn't been solved. Just because we have not detected it, man hasn't figured it out, doesn't mean it hasn't been done. In fact, the opposite. He declares that he has done it. So again, is it possible God could achieve this balance, if you will, without being evil? Yeah, I think he can. I think he did. In fact, I think he does it by being good. Yes, sir? Absolutely. Dave is asking again because he yeah, the titles all the sermon audio things. Uh, is this not one of the five lies of Satan? It absolutely is. Satan is calling God evil. Does it all the time. Says he can't solve free will, sin, and omniscient. It's unsolvable. That's the first lie of Satan. But anyway, that's a lecture on sermon audio somewhere for those of you who would like to listen to that. Which is the view that honors Christ? The one, the fatalism view that says God's evil and, and, and we're going to have to send all kinds of people who have no accountability and no recognition, no ability to reject Christ for sending them to eternal torment simply because they exist? Is that is that Christ honoring? Is mankind responsible, accountable for his and her actions? If that's true, then God must be the judge. John 5.22 All judgment has been committed to Jesus Christ, God himself in the flesh. Is the judge good? Is the the judge just and fair and able to judge and qualified to judge? The answer is yes. Have no view that in any way suggests that Jesus Christ is unqualified to judge, either because he's not good or because he is not God. Do not call him who is pure, good, and sinless the author of evil. Doing so is an attack on his ability to judge, or his ableness to judge, and and his goodness to judge. By the way, so you know, they will tell you that casting infants into eternal fire is good. That's good, they tell me all the time. Yeah, That's God being good. I just look at them and I go, wow. What a, yeah, what a conval, but you have to have that position, right? Because they know Isaiah 520 better than you think. They know not to call God evil. They know not to call him the author of evil, even though they do it all the time, but they know that's problems. So they say, being the author of evil, causing sin, being the one who designed sin, who designed death, who did all of these things on his own, that we're predestined to just be in the midst of, being the one who has done all of that is good. That's what they do. And that is a song and dance, baby. Much as it so. Michael K. from Florida. I will readily admit, having only seen very dimly into this mirror that is God's omniscience and human free will. I will admit that. I will say as confidently, though, as you will say otherwise, that God has solved it. It's solved. But I admit it's also a work in progress for me to exactly say how or totally how. I must, I must do what we all must do. We have to place faith and belief in his goodness and figure and see later how he has done it when he writes it on our hearts. So I'm going to remain slightly confused. But, um, I'm afraid for Michael Kay that he has declared evil to be good. Well, that's not quite fair. I will say that. I don't know for sure that he's done that. Maybe he's unaware of where his position eventually goes. But I will say this, those that are on Michael K.'s side, that there is no free will of any kind for anything, quickly say with loud boldness that God is indeed the creator of evil and that he is making evil good while it is evil. And I hear that almost every day, as astonishing as it is. Okay? I've just been asked many times to share those kinds of things with you. I get them a lot. I usually just hit delete and move on, but sometimes I thought, well, I better... But you have one. Okay, on to the golden kaffirs. Let me put this on the board because this is where we're headed. I have golden caffers. You all know that you have golden kaffirs in Exodus 20. I'm going to tell you that obviously because you have them in Exodus 20, you also have them in Acts 2. And I think that is obvious that you do because you have 3,000 uh, slain in Exodus 20 and 3,000 um, uh, saved at Acts 2, so the question becomes, what's the difference in the golden cappers in both places? Okay, then I have a black sun. And then I have a blood moon. This is where we left off. Uh, then we have the unison of the eleven. What I mean by that is I have all eleven apostles at Acts 2 saying in one voice the same thing in different directions. They're all saying the same thing, the unison of the eleven, uh, and we have to go over that. The physics of sound, because remember, as we've been discussing, I have sound coming out of the eleven. It is Hebrew, uh, Galilean Hebrew, and it is going towards men, devout Jews mostly, but also Gentiles, also uh, um, uh I have Romans, Cretans. I have all kinds of people. I have hundreds of different language or people speaking different languages. Hundreds of it. And that, those eleven speaking Galilean Hebrew, that that sound goes out and it has to hit what? It has to hit the ear, right? What happens when that sound? Because that's pressure, isn't it? I'm as a trumpet player. I know how many. Uh, kilopascals of pressure it takes for me to hit a, uh, double high C or a high C or even a middle C. I know what I have to do. I have to, and that big subwoofer that blew up last week. I know that that subwoofer is pushing air and I got so much volume of air. I've got so much bounce. I've got so much feedback. I've got so much, uh, acoustical problem. I've got some absorption. How much air do I have to push? How much wattage of power do I have to push to get that sound all the way back to Big Bad John? Who we now just call Big Bad. In the back of the church. Pretty soon we'll just call bad. No, but anyway, how much pressure? The physics, I got, I got 11 guys in front of maybe 10, 20,000 people. And they got to get that information to them. And they're yelling it out as the Holy Spirit gave them. I'm saying to you, they're all saying the exact same thing. They're in a circle. And that, that sound, that That wave, sound wave, hits that ear. I want to know, when does it convert to their born language? Because that's what it does. I have hundreds of them out there. When does it convert to their born language? Does it convert at the ear? Or does it convert in the brain? So what is the miracle? The miracle, the physics of the miracle. When did the Holy Spirit make it a miracle is the key question there. Okay? And, and it has to be answered and that when you answer that by the way that helps you understand exactly what's going on now um then i have the tony robbins idiot test how many of you are familiar with that yes exactly the tony tony robbins is a is a uh, what do i call him uh, a, a a fraud how about that okay that's what he is And he's convinced a bunch of people that you can walk across uh, very, very super hot coals and everything's going to be good because you have the power in your what? To keep yourself from being burned, in your mind. And you're going to go across. Listen, it works. The physics of it isn't that complicated. If I go fast enough and my exposure is limited, I can go across. But some people think that their mind is really doing it. And what do we call them? That's right. We call them flunkers of the idiot test. Because what do they do? They really do think that this guy who's stealing their money is actually telling them something that's true, that they can control whether or not they're burned when they go across. Oh, I don't know what the temperature is, but it's pushing 1,000 degrees. They go across those super hot coals. Their mind can keep their feet from being burned. How that work out? (laughs) So they do not. They don't run across. He's out screaming, run, baby, run. They're not. And there's honor. Because what are they going to do? They believe, baby. They believe that their mind is going to protect their feet. And we call them idiots. Does that go on in the church? Yes, it does. We got the Tony Roberts, Robbins idiot test all over the place. We're going to talk about that. Then I have what I call no autographs. And I'm spitting these out really fast. We'll go back over them next week. I'm not going to get done. I call it the no autograph philosophy. Go through your life not worshipping human beings. Don't run out. You know, now at a ball game, a guy hits a baseball foul and a and a, a, somebody catches it. He gives it to a little kid to go get somebody to sign it so he can do what? Sell it on eBay, right? So those athletes are getting really tired of Of all that. And so they're not even signing for little kids now. Um, But go through your life not worshiping people. Certainly don't worship pastors. Certainly don't worship religious leaders. Worship God. Stay away from people. People are what? Evil. That's right. And then experience versus Scripture, which is... One of the most astonishing things for me to deal with in my limited career. There's great conflict in the church today, the contemporary church, between experience and Scripture. There are those who think experience, personal individualistic experience, is more powerful and more valuable and more authoritarian, if you will, has more authority than Scripture. So they descend Scripture or they... they, uh, push scripture down and raise the individual experience up. In other words, my individual experience is more powerful and more true than the Bible is. It's happening everywhere. It happens all over the place. And they'll tell you to your face, and, and I had great conversations with Jonas last week over there, they'll tell you to your face, and it's absolutely true. They told me thousands of times. I felt it. I experienced it. I don't care what the Bible says about it. So I asked simple question. Okay, who got honored there? God's word or you? And I've gone to many many churches as you know I was raised in uh, in churches where there was a designated man out there who had more authority than the Bible. And if he spoke, you wrote it down because it was God speaking. That, by the way, you put it in your Bible. They actually told us. They said, get a, get a notebook in the back. And every time this particular guy says something, write it down because it is equivalent to Scripture. In fact, it's more powerful than Scripture because it's today. This is old. We have a whole church founded on this system, right? What do we call it? Go ahead. Well, <laughs> I was headed a different direction, but you're right. Whenever we put a man up there and say that he has authority and he has a monograph and he writes something and it's more powerful than Scripture, you're absolutely right. Don't worship him. He's got a nice hat. Let him go. This is what's happening. We have one guy out there who's saying that God speaks to him every day. Yeah, he does. He's telling him to shut up. Well, then, n- never mind. Okay. That's what we're covering the next couple of weeks. Okay. Here we go again. Back to where we are. Things that are, uh, i got to read, uh, where are we here? We've got to reread Revelation 6. That's where we have been. So let's do this. We're going to take on the black sun and the blood moon today. I kind of went uh, machine gun Steve Batera really fast over the rest of that. I get that. And it won't, uh, I'll, I'll redo it. Do you know who Machine Gun Lou Batero was? A great pool player. I got to see him play and, uh, when he came to Alaska. Uh, so anyway, that, that means nothing to anyone. But that is my pool table over there, so you understand that. That's not, we always thought in the other church we would put a casket on top of the pool table and tell people that we were having a funeral. That's why it was there. It's just a table. But they figured it out. Here we go, Revelation 6, 12 through 17. This is the sixth seal. Most of the headings in your Bibles will say cosmic disturbances, but I want you to know this is the relationship to Acts 2. This is Joel 2, uh, which was given as the solution, as the answer to the two questions of Acts 2, what does this all mean, what should we do? Joel 2 is the answer to that given by Peter, that was also heard in all the different languages, even though he spoke only Galilee and Hebrew. That's where we'll get back to the unison and the physics of the sound. So it wasn't just the first part of it. All of Peter's sermon, it fits into the to the miracle of the hearing in your born language of Acts 2. And that was the most significant part of hearing in your own language of Acts 2. Not what the 11 said, what Peter said. Because his was the, uh, the explanation. So when you see uh, the uh, sixth seal of Revelation 6:12 uh, through 17, make a little notation of Acts 2 and Joel 2. I looked. When he opened the sixth seal and behold, behold, whatever you see, behold, it's something incredible. There was a great earthquake. So I got a great earthquake that happened and the sun became black as sap Cloth of hair, and the moon became like blood, okay? I got the blood moon, and the black sun, and a great big earthquake, and I'm back to Acts 2. That's the behold, right? And the stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its late figs. Okay, right off the bat now, I put the sun, the moon, and what? Stars together. Sun, moon, and the stars. Where's the first place I'm gonna go now? To solve what this means. Where am I gonna go? I'm going to look for other places where the sun, the moon, and the stars are all together, aren't I? Not much harder than that. The stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its late figs when it is shaken by a mighty wind. Then the sky receded as a scroll when it is rolled up. Oh, well, now i got the sky in there. Someplace i got to find the sun, the moon, the stars, and the sky put together. If I find that, I can understand this. Where do I go? Somebody do it. Creation, absolutely. It's Genesis. Absolutely right. I'm back to Genesis, where he has the sun, the moon, and the stars in the sky all together again. Then the sky receded as a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain, let me repeat that, every mountain and island. So how many islands and mountains are, are we talking about? Every single one. How many we got? We got a lot of them was moved out of its place. You picked a bad day to be windsurfing in Oahu or climbing McKinley. I always loved airport. Lloyd Bridges, I picked a bad day to give the... Never mind. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, how would you like to carry Nate Thurman? Never mind. You have to be old to know that was funny. And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide from us, hide from us the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come, and who is able to stand? And again, that day references Acts 2, because Acts 2 talks about that day. That's the solution to, to all of what was happening in front of these men that were gathered on that pilgrimage feast day when they came in front of those thousands and thousands with hundreds of different languages when they came in front of the eleven. Okay? So, let's go really fast. Things that, are, that you need to know. Revelation 6.12 begins the sixth seal or the opening of the sixth seal, meaning five seals have already been opened. When I mean seal, I mean a rolled up scroll, if you will. Think of it that way. Five seals have been opened and mankind so far, listening listening to those five, seeing those five occur, uh, that's a better way to put it, uh, watching those five occur, heretofore has refused to see them as a divine warning. Mankind has essentially ignored them. What are they? First five seals, I have the Antichrist has come. I have war and famine and disease, and people on the earth are dying in great numbers. And nobody thinks that's what? Nobody thinks that's the tribulation. I got Tom Brokaw and Brian Williams and Dan Rather and all the rest of them explaining it away. Oh, wow, it's global warming. Somebody's got too much hairspray. That's what's happening. They do not say it's the tribulation. It doesn't happen. They don't say it's the tribulation until the opening of this seal that I just read, the sixth seal, the Acts 2 sign. Not until that happened did man acknowledge that the day of the Lamb had come. Now everybody goes, Okay, we're in the tribulation. What would you think they would do when they found out they were in the tribulation? What would you expect them to do? We are in the tribulation. We got a blood moon, a black sun, we got an earthquake, we've got we're in the tribulation. What do they do? Okay, they're back to golden cappers. What did the golden cappers do when they saw what they saw at Acts two? what they do? They repented and they believed. They repented of their disbelief of Christ being God. What's man going to do? Well, you read it there. What'd they do? They run and hide. And I repented. We'll get to that in a minute. Not until this time, the sixth seal, did man acknowledge that they're in the tribulation, that the day of the Lamb had come. For the first time in human history, we have a what kind of earthquake right here? We have a worldwide earthquake. Every mountain, every island. First time. It did not matter where you are. You got a worldwide earthquake. And everybody goes, oh, crud. We are in the tribulation. We'd better go hide. That's their plan. Down into the bomb shelters they go, right, where they got all their food. All the military guys, they go down through the mountains and they hide where they got levels and levels of concrete and they're all down there hiding from who? God. This <laughs> is extraordinary thinking. It's, it's, it, it takes a real interesting mind to see this or to come to that conclusion. But anyway, a worldwide earthquake has occurred and that's the key. The Acts 2, Joel 2, Revelation 6 seal is worldwide, and everybody sees all of these things. Everybody sees the black sun. Everybody sees the blood moon. Everybody sees the sky. uh, uh, Everybody sees the stars. Everybody feels the earthquake. Everybody sees everything, and it's really hard to explain it away now. Nobody's trying to explain it away. They're all running. No more CNN. Worldwide earthquakes, sun's black, moon's blood, stars are affected, every mountain has moved, and every island's moved, and every man on earth now knows the third time has come. The first time these signs were given, if you will, and not specifically like this, but the first time God comes is Exodus 20, next time He comes Acts 2, and now here we are. He's done it again, Revelation 6. He has four signs that are the same. And men are hiding. Again, notice that. They're not repenting, they're not submitting, they're not accepting salvation. They're hiding and they're blaspheming God, Revelation 16:11, Revelation 16:21. They're hating God for what he's doing. But now all the world understands that Jesus Christ the Lamb is causing these signs. He's causing this. So now we get now you understand Michael Cage's letter, right? I have God causing stuff. So you have to ask, let's see, God causes the sun to be black and the moon to be blood and a worldwide earthquake and all that stuff, or he causes me to drop my pen. Okay? Which is it? And now he's causing me to take my glasses off. Now he's causing me to pull my pants up. Now, before he made time, he's causing me to bend over. Ah, but I... No, he caused that too. My faint. I can't see you. I hope you're laughing. Then I go down and before he created time, he caused me to flick that piece of dirt out of the way and then grab this with my thumb and forefinger and pick it up. He's got nothing better to do than focus on me. This is all about me. You start doing stuff like that, who gets honored? God? you i submit that it is narcissistic narcissism it is not god honoring but now the whole world knows that jesus christ is causing these signs of revelation 6 and very few repent they know he's coming as the king the lamb is coming as the king judge but very few repent instead they gather and fight they're going to fight god and that's a fascinating insanity Now, many commentators have tried to explain the sun and moon signs. And and you see it, it is readily obvious that God is doing these signs in this order on purpose. He grouped these together. These are the ones He wants. They are doing something for Him. And it's obvious that He's doing it and that He's doing it for His purpose, which is a big duh, right? God is ending mankind's love affair with the physical reality. If you think the mountains are beautiful, He doesn't, by the way. The mountains are evidence of the, of the cataclysmic flood. He does not, he sees them as high places where men worship pagans. He's not impressed with the mountains. Hey, you're getting rid of them. And he's ending man's love affair with, as I said, the physical reality. What's he going to prove to you? You can't stand up now. Everything's going to fall down, go boom, including mountains. You got no light you got a blood moon. Your stars are disappearing and falling. And the mountains and the islands moving all over the place. So how's your foundation that you put in? You passed the municipal inspection. How'd that work out? So it's best to approach the passage, in my opinion. And that's the only one that counts. I'm kidding. That gets me a lot of little comments, too, that I have to delete. You have to ask. Why? Why is he doing that? Why did he put these together in this group at this time? This is the first time everybody goes, oops, we're in the tribulation. Christ is coming as King Judge. We better hate him. See, and maybe you can say, okay, it's volcanic dust that's causing the blackout and the moon changing colors, and it's meteor showers, and that may be the case. I'm not going to argue with those folks that think that. That may be the case. But it doesn't answer why, and it doesn't answer uh, what God is saying to the world, because God is saying things to the world here. And God is completing his promises that he makes in Exodus 20. Remember, he, he, comes, uh, he promises to solve. He comes with the problem. He says, listen, here are the Ten Commandments. You're going to die in your sins. That's the problem we have. You cannot save yourself. It's impossible for you to save yourself. So I'm going to give you the law of the altar, which is me. And I'm going to promise that there is a solution to free will sin. And I'm going to save those who believe and accept uh, my gift of blood as a covering, as a cleansing. That's his first promise that he makes at Exodus 20. And the second promise he makes at Exodus 20... He uh, says, I'm going to end sin. As you know, his first promise of salvation was accomplished here, if you will. Checked it off, Acts 2. That's why the signs are the same as Exodus 20. And then he comes to Revelation 6, and now he's going to end sin. He's checking it off there. That's why all the signs fit together with Exodus 20. Specifically, the thunderings or the languages, the smoke, the trumpet, and the fire. Okay? Acts 2 is the first promise completed. It's implemented. It is finished. It's done. John nineteen thirty Right? He even says it's done. I've implemented it from the cross. Right? One of the seven sayings of Christ on the cross. Revelation 6 is the beginning of the ending of sin. His second promise. It's finished. Done. Revelation sixteen seventeen. Revelation 21, 6. Find the four it is done statements in the Bible. Actually, there's three. I'm convinced there's a fourth in Genesis. So why? The black sun and the blood moon. Well, that's pretty obvious. What's he doing? What's he saying when he changes the sun black and he changes the moon to blood? What's he saying? Well, let's read it here. Is that Big E that said it's Genesis? Was that you, Big E, said it was Genesis? Yeah. Just in case you guys think that people sleep through the sermon, they don't until I wake them. I'm kidding. But Biggie is absolutely correct. It's here in Genesis 1.16. Then God made the two great lights. What's he called? Great lights. Who's talking? God. How's he describing them? Great lights. He calls them great lights. So. Right off the bat, you should stop and go, what is his definition of great versus my definition of great, or man's definition? Then God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. I have lights that are rulers, or kings, if you will, and then the stars also. God set them in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth and to rule over the day and over the night and to divide the light from the darkness. And God saw it was good, so the evening and the morning were the fourth day. So, the sun is the bright, great light, the greater light that rules the day. The moon is the lesser light. That rules the darkness. They are the two great lights made on the fourth day, and the stars are made also. And they shine, and they're much dimmer in the darkness. Now I think, I submit that the two great lights have to be who? Because they're great, and they're lights, and they rule. Who have they, who are they? Not what are they, who are they? They're symbolic. If you will, they are Pictures of someone. Who? Who can be defined as great and a light and a ruler over darkness? No, it could be God Himself, Jesus Christ. How many lights do I have? I have two of them. How many comings of Christ do I have? I have two of them. I believe, I submit, that they are symbolic of Christ's two coming two comings, his two advents. It is once again about Jesus Christ and His redemptive work. His blood sacrifice. His rulership. His authority. He has authority over sin and death. Death has no power over Him. He has a power, He has power over it. Darkness has no power over Him. He has power over darkness. He can and He will end it. He'll destroy it. And the moon is in the midst of the darkness, isn't it? And the sun comes up and what does the sun do to the darkness? destroys it, ends it. The sun ends the darkness, does it over and over and over again. Every time we have darkness, what do we get? An end of the darkness. Christ came and was in the darkness and gave what? Gave his blood when he was in the darkness. And Christ will come again and he'll do what? He'll destroy evil. He'll end it. No more darkness. And it all happens on the fourth day. And that's very important because Christ came on the fourth day, right? 4,000 years from the primeval. I need to write that on the board, not primeval. Primeval, what is the first light that you read in Scripture, is Christ. He is the primeval light. The sun and the moon are symbols of the primeval light that brings life to the dark planet. You see that in the first beginning of Genesis. So I'm going to tell you that the mud mud, mud balloon, the moon blood or the blood moon is the first Advent testimony. The sun black is the removing of the light. Going fast, I realize that. So first, in the sky, well, I've got to do it in the right sizes, don't I? In the sky, I have the moon and the sun. Oh, look here. I have a red pen. God turns the moon red and the sun black. He has removed the light from the earth and he has said blood. He likes blood, by the way. He likes talking about blood and he likes showing people blood. I think all for the same reason. He's saying that the door of the Ark of Noah is closing right here. I'm shutting the door. You gotta get on. Running out of time. What are they doing? They getting on? No, they're running and hiding themselves, aren't they? Running out of time. I'm going to take the light. The gift of salvation is being withdrawn. What's the sun do pretty soon? Revelation. Ah, excuse me. Revelation 16:8. What's the sun going to do pretty soon? It's going to scorch everybody. So instead of the light that ends the darkness, I, the sun's going to become heat. I'm removing the light, and the blackness goes away. What do I got left? Heat. And The scorching starts. Jesus himself says the two great lights will not give their light. Matthew 2429 through 31 in the tribulation. The two great lights will not, light, will not give their light anymore. So there will come a time in the tribulation when it will be too late to be saved. It's a solemn warning. God has given a solemn warning in Revelation 6. He said first advent was a chance to be saved. I'm gonna, I'm gonna stop giving that chance. You're running out of time. And we are, of course, the church. We're the what? Which one are we? We're these guys. And what are we? We're in the darkness. We are now. We're on the earth. How, how bright's our light? Not very bright. You call us dim. And we're kind of like little Christmas tree bulbs. So you could call us dim bulbs. What's he going to do with us? What did he say? He's going to remove us, isn't he? What's going to happen in the tribulation? The church is going to be removed. Okay. Very slowly, the light of salvation is going to be withdrawn And what am I going to have left? Heat. Judgment. Acts 2 checked off the solution. Revelation 6 is the ending of sin. That's how it begins to fit together. Now, I'm aware that many see the moon as the church, reflecting the light of the sun. And that's obviously true. Reflecting the light that is Christ. But to explain the turning to blood requires... that 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 you'll be in the context of the sacrifice of Christ. So I I I think the case that it is a sacrifice of Christ, uh, last warning is much more consistent with the text. Hopefully you'll begin now to see Acts 2 all through the book of Revelation because that's it's all over the place. The noises, the trumpets, if you will, the thunderings, the languages, if you will, the lightning that flashes from the fire and the smoke. Those four great signs all over the book of Revelation. Everywhere in the book of Revelation, that's why... Revelation 6 right I have blood and I have lots of blood again God loves turning his turning to blood sign he turns living water to blood does that make sense the living water becomes blood that makes sense the moon to blood oceans to blood the Nile to blood start collecting the blood signs we'll do that next week and finally which is everybody's favorite word here 3,000 gold golden calf makers as musicians. Come up and shut this down. They, both, they all responded to the what does this mean and what shall we do? In Exodus 20, they make a golden calf. That didn't go well. 3,000 devout Jews responded to those same questions by repenting from their unbelief in Christ as Jesus God. Remember it says that. No comma. Jesus God. That's very important to know. Jesus God, which there is no comma between Jesus God. It says, this Jesus God has raised. The comma goes here, not here. Your Bible might have it here. Your Bible might say, this Jesus God has raised. Well, you could just as easily say, this God, God has raised. God has raised himself. Christ even said so. So the comma obviously goes there. This Jesus God, which means the Messiah and God are the same person. That was an astonishing truth to the Jews. This Jesus God has raised, and they repent, and they believe that, and 3,000 are saved. And I submit the questions were exactly the same in both places. Okay, next week, the Tony Robbins idiot test. Experience over authority. I'm sorry, experience over uh, scripture. We'll go back to Acts 2 a little bit and finish off with the physics of sound, if necessary, and get that all done. And let's rise and be dismissed.